Hello and welcome to the 24th episode of TopCast. And today we're talking about chapter 11 at the beginning of Infinity, the multiverse. There's been two preamble chapters to this or two preamble episodes to this um, to try and help you understand some of the evidence, some of the experiments that come to bear on why it is that we endorse the multiverse as the best way of understanding quantum theory. Although those of us who endorse the multiverse don't see a difference between quantum theory and the multiverse. The multiverse is just realism, just taking literally what the formalism in quantum theory says and what the experiments are telling us. Now I'm trying a little experiment today. The previous episode was highly edited. It contained lots of videos and bells and whistles and that kind of thing. And it was difficult to edit. It took a lot, far longer to edit than it took to shoot. Now, some people have given me feedback, very valuable feedback, and I love the feedback. If you have any feedback about this one, please comment in the YouTube video, send me an email, or contact me on Twitter. I'll certainly take it on board because this time around, I'm going to reduce the amount of editing. So it'll be a little bit more conversational, a little bit more relaxed. I'll refer to notes far less. But we are going to actually read from the book this time. Uh, and also, I've been advertising the donate button on my website, www.bretthall.org. If you're finding any of this valuable, the podcasts, the videos, the website, please feel free to donate. I'd appreciate that very much. I have a Patreon account and I have a PayPal account as well. And my website has details about that. Thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. It means the world to me. Okay, so I'm going to get straight into reading from chapter 11 with some reflections along the way this time. A little bit more relaxed. It's going to take a while to get through this chapter. We've already had, as I said, two episodes. This brings us up to the third. I can envisage probably two more after this as well. So that'll be five altogether in trying to explain the multiverse. It is a powerful argument, as I've said before, in this chapter in the beginning of infinity, but it takes some unpacking. As I said, there'll be far less editing in this video, this audio, um, but some of, some of the editing is, editing is unavoidable simply because I either make complete and utter mistakes or I just need a drink of water and you don't need to hear that. Okay, so David writes right at the beginning of chapter 11, quote, The idea of a doppelganger, a double of a person, is a frequent theme of science fiction. For instance, the classical television series, Star Trek, featured several types of doppelganger story involving malfunctions of the transporter, the starship's teleportation device normally used for short-range space travel. Since teleporting something is conceptually similar to making a copy of it at a different location, one can imagine various ways in which the process could go wrong, and somehow end up with two instances of each passenger, the original and the copy. Sometimes a doppelganger is not copied from an original but exists from the outset in a parallel universe. In some stories, there is a rift between universes through which one can communicate or even travel to meet one's doppelganger. In others, the universes remain mutually imperceptible, in which case the interest of the story, or rather two stories, is in how events are affected by the differences between them. For instance, the movie Sliding Doors interleaves two variants of a love story following the fortunes of two instances of the same couple in two universes which initially differ only in one small detail. In a related genre, known as alternate history, one of the two stories need not be told explicitly because it is part of our own history and is assumed to be known to the audience. 
For example, the novel Fatherland by Robert Harris is about a universe in which Germany won the Second World War. Robert Silberberg's Roma Returner is one about is about one in which the Roman Empire did not fall. I'll pause there. End quote. Um, the Man in the High Castle, that's a recent one. I think it was on Amazon Prime. It went for two seasons, precisely about the alternative universe in which uh, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan indeed won the Second World War. And it's a society set in, uh, it's not quite modern day, I don't think, but a society where um, those two uh, where those two empires basically took over the world. And importantly, um, they took over the United States and that was sort of divided down the middle, one part uh, run by Germany and one part run by Japan. Okay, let's keep going. David writes, quote, In another class of stories, the transporter malfunction accidentally exiles the passengers to a phantom zone where they are imperceptible to everyone in the ordinary world but can see and hear them and each other. So they have the distressing experience of yelling and gesticulating in vain to their shipmates who are oblivious and walk right through them. In some stories, it is only copies of the travellers that are sent to a phantom zone, unbeknown to the originals. Such a story may end with the exiles discovering that they can, after all, have some effect on the ordinary world. They use that effect to signal their existence and are rescued through a reversal of the process that exiled them. Depending on, the picture, depending on the fictional science that has been supposed, they then may begin new lives as separate people, or they may merge with their originals. The latter option violates the principle of the conservation of mass, among other laws of physics, but again, this is fiction. Nevertheless, there is a certain category of rather pedantic science fiction enthusiasts, myself included, who prefer the fictional science to make sense, to consist of reasonably good explanations. Imagining worlds with different laws of physics is one thing. Imagining worlds that do not make sense in their own terms is quite another. For instance, we want to know how it can be that the exiles can see and hear the ordinary world but not touch it. Pause there, end quote, and I'm the same. Um, for example, one of the first, I'm of an age, where one of the first great blockbuster movies that uh, took my interest was Star Wars. I love Star Wars, but I quickly realized that it was fantasy and not true science fiction. Um, I was a science nerd, I suppose, early on in life, loved astronomy, and I understood what a parsec was. So when Han Solo said the Millennium Falcon, the spaceship, could make the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, that didn't make sense. And then in episode one of Star Wars in 1997-ish, when that was released, Many of us Star Wars fans were utterly befuddled, confused and disappointed that George Lucas tried to explain the scientific basis of the Force. To me, the Force was just magic. It served the same role that you know, Gandalf's staff did in Lord of the Rings. There was nothing scientific about the Force, and nor should one try and make something scientific about the Force. But he did. He tried to explain that there were these little bacteria, these little life forms inside of every cell called midichlorines, and these things somehow mediated the messages between the Force and the user of the Force, like the Jedi. Master, sir, I heard Yoda talking about midichlorines. I've been wondering, what are midichlorines? Midichlorines are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. They live inside me. Inside yourselves, yes. And we are symbionts with them. Symbionts? Life forms living together for mutual advantage. 
Without the midichlorians, life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. They continually speak to us, telling us the will of the Force. When you learn to quiet your mind, you'll hear them speaking to you. I don't understand. With time and training, Annie, you will. You know, we should treat fantasy as fantasy, treat it as a universe with completely different laws of physics, rather than try and show how the fantasy elements of things like Star Wars can actually make sense. Um, they need not make sense in that universe. Okay, And we're not told um, what kind of universe we're supposed to be in, namely a universe different from ours, then we won't be disappointed with the explanations. I've never needed an explanation in the Star Wars universe as to why the laser bolts from the gun travel so slowly, far slower than normal bullets. You can see them travel through the air. And moreover, I've never been concerned about the fact there is sound in space in Star Wars. It's a different fictional fantasy universe. That doesn't worry me. Um, but if it purports to be our universe, obeying our laws, then yes, it's disappointing. So for example, when Superman's cape flaps in the wind on the moon, when he's visiting the uh, astronauts, that's intolerable. That shouldn't happen. Nor should he be able to speak on the moon as well, but he does. Okay, let's keep going in this pedantic vein. Um, David writes, quote, This attitude of ours was nicely parodied in an episode of the television series The Simpsons, in which fans of a fantasy series question its star. Star. Next question. Fan. Yes, over here. <clears throat> In episode BF12, you were battling barbarians while riding a winged Appaloosa. Yet in the very next scene, my dear, you are clearly atop a winged Arabian. Please to explain it. Star. Ah, yeah, well, whenever you notice something like that, a wizard did it. Fan. All right, I see, yes. But in episode AG4, star. Wizard. Fan. Oh, for Glavin out loud. And Glavin is something that we don't understand the meaning of. I'll continue. Because that is a parody, the fan is complaining not about the story itself, but that there is a continuity error. Two horses were used at different times to play the role of a single fictional horse. Nevertheless, there are such things as flawed stories. End quote. Just my reflection on that. Um, I won't read the next part here. Basically, David's pointing out that if you do have a flawed story, often it comes down to a wizard did it kind of thing. And so you're not being given an explanation. You're, being, you're having something explained away, told, don't ask this question because it's magic. A wizard has done it. It's a very easy to vary explanation. And so even in terms of the, the fictional world itself, it can be a bad explanation. So, skipping a substantial part there, and then David writes, In that spirit then, consider the fictional doppelgangers in the Phantom Zone. What enables them to see the ordinary world? Since they are structurally identical to their originals, their eyes work by absorbing light and detecting the resulting chemical changes, just as realised do. But if they absorb some of the light coming from the ordinary world, then they must cast shadows at the places where that light would otherwise have arrived. Also, if the exiles in the Phantom Zone can see each other, what light are they seeing with? The Phantom Zone's own light? If so, where does it come from? Pause there, my reflection. Yeah, I remember my father telling me about, I think it was a movie, old movie, The, the Invisible Man. And he would always try and explain to me why the Invisible Man would actually be blind. 
because he's not absorbing any light. If, if you have a true invisible man wandering around, in fact, I think there's a, there's a modern day version of the invisible man that's on right now, showing right now in 2020. He should be blind. He or she should be blind if you're invisible, if you're completely invisible, because your eyes will allow all the light to pass through them. It's not capturing any light whatsoever. It's not doing what light should do. Namely, be absorbed by the retina. And if it's not being absorbed by the retina because it's perfectly transparent, then indeed the invisible man will be blind and all people in the phantom zone will be blind. And if they're not blind, then it must just be receiving light from somewhere and that must be phantom zone light as well. Skipping a bit and then David writes... It seems that almost everything in these Phantom Zone stories that happens in the story not only conflicts with the real laws of physics, which is unexceptional in fiction, but raises problems with the fictional explanation. If the doppelgangers can walk through people in these stories, why do they not fall through the floor? In reality, a floor supports people by bending slightly. But if it were to bend in the story, it would also vibrate with their steps and set off sound waves, which people in the ordinary world could hear. So there must be a separate floor and walls, as well as an entire spaceship hull in the Phantom Zone. Even the space outside cannot be ordinary space, because if one could get back into ordinary space by leaving the ship, then the exiles could return by that route. But there is an entire Phantom Zone space, but if there is an entire Phantom Zone space out there, a parallel universe, how could a mere transporter malfunction have created that? We should not be surprised that good fictional science is hard to invent. It is a variant of real science, and real scientific knowledge is very hard to vary. Pause there, just skipping a substantial part and getting straight into more of the meat of the matter when it comes to quantum theory, because David is going to explain quantum theory via a fictional story. And so there's some explanation about the tactic that he's using here, and then he goes on to write, quote, Quantum theory is the deepest explanation known to science. It violates many of the assumptions of common sense and all of previous science, including some that no one suspected were being made at all until quantum theory came along and contradicted them. And yet this seemingly alien territory is the reality of which we and everything we experience are part. There is no other. So in setting a story there, perhaps what I lose in terms of the familiar ingredients of drama, I shall gain in terms of opportunity to explain something that is more astounding than any fiction, yet is the purest and most basic fact we know about the physical world. I had better warn the reader that the account that I shall give, known as the many universes interpretation of quantum theory, rather inadequately, since there is much more to it than universes, remains at the time of writing a decidedly minority view among physicists. In the next chapter, I shall speculate why that is so, despite the fact that many well-studied phenomena have no other known explanation. For the moment, suffice it to say that the very idea of science as explanation, in the sense that I am advocating in this book, namely an account of what is really out there, is itself still a minority view, even among theoretical physicists. Pause there, my reflection, firstly. Notice how I just paused there. Normally, I would edit that out and try and say that again. So this is one of the things that I'm asking people to give me feedback on. Would you prefer I just reread that um, rather than yeah, stumbling over my words? Um, David does say there that um, this idea of science's explanation is itself uh, still a minority view even among theoretical physicists. Yeah, it seems to me that it is primarily <laughs> a problem among theoretical physicists. It's the theoretical physicists that seem to deny that what Physics, in this particular case, is telling us about reality shouldn't be taken seriously, that we don't need to explain what's actually happening. 
and that we can just be therefore instrumentalists when it comes to things like quantum theory. I mentioned this in the previous two episodes. It's not so much a problem for ornithologists, people who study birds. They tend to be realists about the fact that birds exist and birds evolve and have common ancestors with people. It's not really seemingly a problem for geologists or people who want to try and find something like oil in the ground using radar techniques or gravimetric analysis. These people are realists about where the oil is and the fact that rocks exist and you have to bash through them. They're still scientists. It really is a problem at the very edge of our understanding the most fundamental theories about science. It's there, it seems to me, the philosophy somewhat changes in people's minds. They cease to be realists about the things that they're studying when it comes to science. There's also, of course, a sense in which uh, there is this folk um, relativism as well that many people have when you ask them what they really know exists, they deny really knowing that anything absolutely exists, okay? Um, especially educated people. And the more educated people become, the more sceptical they come about straightforward realism and the fact that science explains reality. It doesn't have the final word, but it explains aspects of reality. And you're entitled to say electrons really exist and people really exist and birds really exist and so on. That's what realism is, and that's what science's explanation is all about. If something appears unavoidably in our best explanation, then that entity exists. This is explained very well in the fabric of reality, by the way. So I'll say that again. We know something exists if it appears in our best explanations. Now, some people object to this. They say, well, well then if our best explanation changes, that means that what you said existed before no longer exists. Yes. Yes, I find that a fairly mundane claim. Um, knowing something exists is not knowing something absolutely once and for all finally exists and there can be no change in your knowledge about the existence of that thing. Okay? Whether something exists in some final ultimate sense is not knowable, just like it's in some final sense we cannot know the final laws of physics or the final ultimate knowledge about everything. We won't get there. We're at the beginning of infinity. So instead, we have to interpret the word existence as being about the contents of our best current explanations. It's not an infallible criteria when we're talking about existence. So that's the only remark I'll make on that. And I think that um, your typical scientist, the further they get away from theoretical physics, they tend to be realists about their own field. I have a friend who is a marine biologist. I've never heard him deny the fact that squid exists. He studies squid, he knows that the squids exist, and he's quite happy to say, I know that squids exist. On the other hand, the theoretical physicist does tend to deny the reality of what things like the Schrodinger wave equation tell us about reality. Anyway, I digress, and let me return to the book David writes. Let me begin with perhaps the simplest possible parallel universe speculation. A phantom zone has existed all along ever since its own Big Bang. Until our story begins, it has been an exact doppelganger of the entire universe, atom for atom, and event for event. All the flaws that I mentioned in the Phantom Zone stories divide... All the flaws in... 
All the flaws that I mentioned in the Phantom Zone stories derive from the asymmetry, that things in the ordinary world affect things in the Phantom Zone, but not vice versa. So let me eliminate those flaws by imagining for a moment that the universes are completely imperceptible to each other. Since we are heading towards real physics, let me also retain the speed of light limit on communication and let the laws of physics be universal and symmetrical, i.e. they make no distinction between the universes. Moreover, they are deterministic. Nothing random ever happens, which is why the universes have remained alike so far. How can they ever become different? This is a key question in the theory of the multiverse, which I shall answer below. All these basic properties of my fictional world can be thought of as conditions on the flow of information. One cannot send a message to the other universe, nor can one change anything in one's own universe sooner than light could reach that thing. Nor can one bring new information, even random information, into the world. Everything that happens is determined by the laws of physics from what has gone before. However, one can, of course, bring new knowledge into the world. Knowledge consists of explanations, and none of those conditions prevents the creation of new explanations. All this is true of the real world, too. Pause there. End quote. Here is my controversial take on that. It's not controversial to me, but it's something, some discussions I've been engaged in recently. Discussions that go back some two decades about this particular thing. All those things that David said there are quite true. So, for example, everything that happens is determined by the laws of physics from what has gone before. So determinism is real. Every event is absolutely determined by the laws of physics. But to assume that it is the past that determines the future is just a bias. Because the laws of physics are symmetric in time, one may as well say the future determines the past state as well. So you can take any future state, apply the laws of physics in reverse, and end up with that past state. Everything is determined, doesn't privilege what thing in time determines what other thing in time, because you can reverse the laws of physics. They are symmetric. The laws of motion are symmetric. Okay. The one thing that can be brought into this world, so new information can't be brought into this world. However, new knowledge can be brought into this world by creative people. And the essence of new knowledge created by creative people, that seems somewhat redundant and circular, but it's true that people are creative, they create new knowledge, is that that new knowledge is impossible to predict ahead of time. Were it possible to predict what knowledge someone was going to create, then that knowledge would be had at the time of the prediction. And thus it would not be a genuine creation of that knowledge. But knowledge really is created and has a causal effect in the world. And it cannot be predicted, not only because it's super complex, although David is going to explain how that is one factor, but I would say we simply do not know the process by which knowledge creation occurs. We have some ideas. Popperian epistemology gives us some ideas that it is this process of conjecture and refutation. But how new conjectures are arrived at, what the process is that goes on inside the mind of a person in order to create this new explanatory knowledge, we don't know. It's a black box for now. It could very well be. It could very well be 
that it remains some kind of black box, that there is some uncertainty principle that controls creativity. I'm just conjecturing this. I'm just throwing this out there. I'm not saying that I believe it. I'm saying it's a possibility that it will be, it will turn out to be inherently impossible to predict knowledge creation. There'll be some principle that prohibits us from predicting what knowledge a person will create. It's inherently unpredictable. And if it's inherently unpredictable, then we have to realize then, although it's determined by the laws of physics, everything is determined by the laws of physics, this does not rule out free will because free will is intrinsically coupled to this idea of creating new knowledge. That if you have a decision to make in your life, where apparently you only have two choices, the human mind is such that it can create new options, options that weren't there before. And although you might be told, you can have tea or coffee, and this is the classic free will thought experiment, whether you have tea or coffee might have been determined prior to you're making the choice about tea or coffee. But now, if you're someone like me who endorses the idea of free will as a real thing, I would say you can't even say that it's a 50-50 chance. You can't even say that the person will choose tea or coffee. The person might not want either. The person might choose to drink neither. The person might choose to mix them together. The person might choose to invent a new drink altogether. All of these things, though consistent with the laws of physics, cannot be predicted ahead of time. This is what free will is about. It has something to do with creatively generating new options that weren't there previously. And so I call this an emergent feature of reality. The fact that, the fact that people are unique in this regard. People are unique in this regard and cosmically important in large part for this reason. That they bring new options into the world. That they can create new explanations and those new explanations gives them a wider repertoire of ways in which to control the world they find themselves in and control the environment that they find themselves in. And so attempting to prophesy things into the distant future is near impossible. We can have some crude estimates based upon current knowledge about what's going to happen into the distant future, but invariably that will be wrong because we haven't been able to take account of human creativity. Is everything determined by the laws of physics? Absolutely. Do we know what all the laws of physics are and the most fundamental laws of physics that exist? No. Will we ever? No. Could any of these laws of physics have anything whatever to do with creative conjectures? Perhaps. And perhaps some of them will tell us why it is that we can't predict ahead of time what is going to happen. If you can't predict ahead of time what is going to happen when a person is involved, then that's what free will basically amounts to. Although it's determined, it's not predictable. Say it again, although something might be determined that has nothing to do with whether from the perspective of a single person or an entire civilization, whether that thing is predictable. And if it's not predictable, despite being determined, we have a form of compatibilism here. Unpredictability and determinism. And I think when that situation arises in the context of creative expression by people, we have something that we may as well call free will because it's serving all the functions that classical free will serves. Now, I need to clarify something on that point about people being unique in bringing knowledge into the world. And so the fact that they create knowledge means that 
it's unpredictable what's going to happen into the distant future because of the fact it's a genuine act of creation, despite the fact everything obeys the laws of physics. The laws of physics are the thing that allow, even mandate perhaps, that this creative act of knowledge production can actually occur in the minds of human beings. What I want to clarify is explanatory knowledge is not the only kind of knowledge that can be brought into the universe. There is another kind that we have mentioned here on TopCast and that we have uh, read about from the beginning of infinity. That other kind of knowledge is, of course, evolutionary knowledge or genetic knowledge, knowledge that is in the DNA, knowledge that enables organisms to survive in certain environments, in, in, in given environments. And in fact, it's a nice parallel, really. A biologist would be able to explain how it is that we cannot predict what, kind, what animals, what specific species are going to evolve in particular niches. You can guess, you can have an approximate understanding that, well, if you find a particular biological niche, then a certain kind of organism might be expected to fill that niche in some way. I think, I think Darwin himself, Charles Darwin, made a kind of prediction, given that there was a certain kind of orchid that existed, which uh, had a very long stem. It was very difficult for any insect to actually reach down to get the nectar from the bottom of that orchid. And so he postulated that there should be a moth out there somewhere with a very long proboscis, a very long, you know, kind of insect beak thing that could get down into that orchid. And so he did indeed make a, a kind of evolutionary prediction. But it's not a prediction in the same way that physics makes predictions. After all, evolution is blind. And this evolution is blind claim is quite true. That means we can't really predict what's going to happen next because although there might be certain niches where we would expect the co-evolution of two organisms, given any particular environment, it's going to be extremely difficult indeed to try and figure out what kind of organisms might actually specifically arise in those environments. If we were alien biologists and we tried to predict, for example, given no other information other than what the physical environment of the continent of Australia was like and the physical environment of what the continent of Africa is like, they're both quite similar, both hot, rather dry places, it'd be very difficult to figure out that the kangaroos evolved in one place and the lions evolved in another place. I don't think that biology is able to do that kind of prediction. And that's the way in which evolution is creative. It's able to bring these organisms into being to fill niches. But what specific kind of organism fills a particular physical niche, uh, that's unpredictable. And it's, it's a form of creativity. It's a form of knowledge creation by evolution equally determined by the laws of physics, but the laws of physics determine in the sense that allow for evolution to proceed, evolution to occur. So evolution brings knowledge into existence. So too do people. The difference is that people bring into existence explanatory type knowledge. And this explanatory knowledge is inherently unpredictable and allows us to change the environment in which we find ourselves, to understand the environment and to control it. So yeah, just a quick clarification on that point. There are indeed two kinds of knowledge, explanatory and evolutionary. Okay, let's um, keep on going. That was a massive diversion. Uh, and David writes, we can we can temporarily think of the two universes as being literally parallel. Suppress the third dimension of space and think of a universe as being two-dimensional, like an infinitely flat television. 
Then place a second such television parallel to it, showing exactly the same pictures, symbolizing the objects in the two universes. Now forget the material on which now forget the material of which the televisions are made. Only the pictures exist. This is to stress that a universe is not a receptacle containing physical objects. It is those objects. In real physics, even space is a physical object capable of warping and affecting matter and being affected by it. Now we have two perfectly parallel identical universes, each including an instance of our starship, its crew and its transporter, and of the whole of space. Because of the symmetry between them, it is now misleading to call one of them the ordinary universe and the other the phantom zone. So I should just call them the multiverse. So I should just call them universes. The two of them together, which comprise the whole of physical reality in the story so far, are the multiverse. Similarly, it is misleading to speak of the original object and its doppelganger. They are, two, they are simply the two instances of each object. If our science fiction speculation were to stop there, the two universes would have to remain identical forever. There is nothing logically impossible about that, yet it would make our story fatally flawed, both as fiction and as scientific speculation. And for the same reason, it is a story of two universes, but only one history. That is to say, there is only one script about what is really there in both universes. Considered as fiction, therefore, it is really a single universe story in a pointless disguise. Considered as a scientific explanation, considered as scientific speculation, it describes a world that would not be explicable to its inhabitants. For how could they ever argue that their history takes place in two universes and not three or thirty? Why not two today and thirty tomorrow? Moreover, since their world has only one history, all their good explanations about the nature would be about that history. That single history would be what they meant by their world or universe. Nothing of the underlying two-ness of their reality would be accessible to them, nor would it make any more sense to them as an explanation than would threeness or thirtiness. Yet they would be factually mistaken. A remark about explanation. Although the story so far would be a bad explanation from the inhabitants' point of view, it is not necessarily bad from ours. Imagining inexplicable worlds can help us to understand the nature of explicability. I have already imagined some explicable worlds for that very reason in previous chapters, and I shall imagine more in this chapter. But in the end, I want to tell of an explicable world, and it will be ours. A remark about terminology. The world is the whole of physical reality. In classical, pre-quantum physics, the world was thought to consist of one universe, something like a whole three-dimensional space for the whole of time and all its contents. According to quantum physics, as I shall explain, the world is much larger and more complicated object. The multiverse, which includes many such universes among other things. And history is a sequence of events happening to objects and possibly their identical counterparts. So in my story so far, the world is a multiverse that consists of two universes but has only one single history. So our two universes must not stay identical. Something like a transporter malfunction will have to make them different. Yet as I said, that may seem to have been ruled out by those restrictions on information flow. The laws of physics in the fictional multiverse are deterministic and symmetrical. So what can the transporter possibly do that would make the two universes differ? It may seem that whatever one instance of it does to one universe, its doppelganger must be doing to the other, so the universes can only remain the same. Surprisingly, that is not so. It is consistent for two identical entities to become different under deterministic and symmetrical laws. Pause there. Um, end quote for the moment. Just a little reflection of mine. This is just like the half-silvered mirror in the Mark Zender interferometer that we talked about in the last episode. Um, this is where, although the laws of physics are deterministic and symmetrical, nonetheless, you could have a situation where a photon can strike a half-silvered mirror and 50% of the time it will go through and 50% of the time it will bounce off. And in fact, in the real multiverse, 
what we have is in that situation, 50% of all electrons that, or photons rather, that strike that half-silvered mirror will go through, all fungible copies of this one electron will go through, and 50% will bounce off. And so although you have symmetrical deterministic laws, there's two different possible outcomes. That causes the universes to become different. When you have that capacity for differentiation, symmetrical deterministic laws can cause different things to happen, and it really happens in real life. Um, a voltage surge, for example, such as David has in his fictional story, it could be something like, well, just by chance, chance I say chance, but due to the laws of physics, an electron can have different energies uh, as it orbits a nucleus. In fact, it could have so much energy it ionizes. And this effectively is a spark on an atomic scale. Ionize means the electron leaves the atom. Now, as it leaves the atom, it could strike other electrons and have a cascading effect and causing other electrons to be ionized from their atoms. And then you do get a real life little spark. This could be how the malfunctioner, uh, the malfunction in the uh, transporter works. Okay, so I'll just continue for a little longer and then I'll stop here. Uh, having not read too much, uh, just as an experiment, remember I want people's feedback on uh, whether you think the lack of editing in this episode is a better or a worse thing. Okay, continuing. Quote, David writes, But for that to happen, they must initially be more than just exact images of each other. They must be fungible by which I mean identical in literally every way except that there are two of them. The concept of fungibility is going to be is going to appear repeatedly in my story. The term is borrowed from legal terminology, where it refers to the legal fiction that deems certain entities to be identical for purposes such as paying debts. For example, dollar bills are fungible in law, which means that unless otherwise agreed, borrowing a dollar does not require one to return the specific banknote that one borrowed. Barrels of oil of a given grade are fungible too. Horses are not. Borrowing someone's horse means that one has to return that specific horse, even its identical twin will not do. But the physical fungibility I'm referring to here is not about deeming. It means being identical. And that is very different and a counterintuitive property. Leibniz, in his doctrine of the identity of indiscernibles, went so far as to rule out its existence on principle. But he was mistaken. Even aside from the physics of the multiverse, we now know that photons, and under some conditions even atoms, can be fungible. This is achieved in lasers and in devices called atomic lasers, respectively. The latter emit bursts of extremely cold, fungible atoms. For how this is possible without causing transmutation, explosions and so on, see below. End quote. Just pause here. Um, I notice there's a third meaning of fungible, and people have been using this increasingly more, especially in economics. And for audio-only listeners, I'm just drawing your attention to, on the video version, I'm showing you the third definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which says that the definition of fungible is readily changeable to new situations. Um, it now seems to me to have been perverted to mean just similar um, or transferable. Um, I heard on a podcast, for example, recently, someone talking about how uh, car manufacturing recently has stopped in Australia and there was some talk about uh, creating an industry of jet fighters and without getting into the politics of it, the, um, the, the commentators were there were talking about how the skills of the car builders may have been fungible for um, aircraft building 
Now, they made it explicit. They didn't think that this meant the skills were exactly the same, but rather just transferable, that you could move the skills from building cars to building jets. Right or wrong, in terms of the terminology, that's a weakening of this term of fungibility, where it just means similar, approximately the same, good enough. This is completely unlike what David's talking about, where it kind of means more identical than identical, because it means identical copies in exactly the same places doing exactly the same thing. Okay. Um, okay, I'll just read a little bit more. David writes, quote, You will not find the concept of fungibility discussed or even mentioned in many textbooks or research papers on quantum theory, even the small minority that endorsed the many universes' interpretation. Nevertheless, it is everywhere, just beneath the conceptual surface, and I believe that making it explicit helps to explain quantum phenomena without fudging. As will become clear, it is even weirder an attribute than Leibniz guessed, much weirder than multiple universes, for instance, which are, after all, just common sense repeated. It allows radically new types of motion and information flow, different from anything that was imagined before quantum physics, and hence a radically different structure of the physical world. Pause there. End quote. And that's where I'll end the reading for today. Um, yes, so we're getting a hint here now that the multiple universes aspect of quantum theory, of the multiverse, is not the most amazing thing. This concept of fungibility really is the most, well, one of the more amazing things. Not only are photons, electrons, and um, other subatomic particles fungible, and there are fungible instances of them, according to quantum theory, but you yourself a person, contains many instances, fungible instances, right now, perhaps uncountably infinite. What does it feel like to be uncountably infinite numbers of fungible instances of a person, exactly as it feels like to you right now? What does it feel like to differentiate into two different copies, uh, exactly as it feels like now? Okay, we have to understand reality as it is. Now, we don't know what it would feel like to split and then merge again, although that might happen, because we don't have sense organs for that. But perhaps in the episode next or the one after that, I'll explain the experiment that David has proposed to differentiate between this multiverse conception of quantum theory, the realist conception, versus other conceptions of quantum theory. The other conceptions of quantum theory are far more, to my mind, counterintuitive, illogical even. Those interpretations say that all of the universes disappear except for one when being observed. In other words, the power of the human mind, of consciousness, is what causes the collapse of the wave function. But we'll talk about that in a future episode. For now, thank you for listening. Um, and do let me know via whatever means. If you preferred this style, slightly more relaxed, more conversational, me not referring to notes very often, stumbling over my words in places, possibly not sounding as refined as what I did in previous episodes. What do you prefer? Uh, because moving forward, I'll be taking people's ideas on board to some extent. Until then, bye. Bye.